Yeah, so if you have any questions, again, feel free to talk to me about that. But August 25th at 845, uh, we, will, we will be here. Um, it'll be a little, little cooler in here as well, um, is the plan. Although it's not too bad in here today. Last week was rough. It's a little better in here today. Um, all right, so uh, next week, we're moving on to a new series called, Hey, I Have a Question. Um, it's our summer ser- sermon series. And so what, what happened was, and again, I, I never even asked any of you for this, but you could feel free to email brian at hopecc.com. And um, so Pastor Steve and Pastor Cor are, are teaching some of these, and I'm, I'm teaching them as well. Um, and uh, we're kind of picking and choosing which ones that, that we would like to teach and what we seemed like if there was a theme of questions on a certain topic. Um, and so next week, actually, we're going to start this by, uh, I'll be teaching on just the reliability of the Bible. Is the scripture actually what, what it says to be? Uh, why do we have so many translations? Are they even trustworthy? And, and all those different things. And, and look at these big phrases like infallibility and inerrancy and all those things. Does it even matter? Has it mattered for the history of, of the church? Or is this just a new thing that's now popping up on the scene? Because um, the reformers don't really talk about it a lot. But that'll be next week of, of just saying, is, is God's word God's word? Um, and how, how can we know that? How can we trust that? Um, I think it is. So... Um, that's why I'm reading from it tonight, and I teach from it. But um, we'll, I'll give you a little bit more uh, data next week on that. So this is the end of this book of First Peter, Between Two Worlds. This is the last week. of, of This is our 21st week that we've been in this book, which is ironic because this week, um, uh, the last kind of phrase, he kind of has this little outro, and he says, I wrote you this short letter. And I'm like, yeah, we spent, spent 21 weeks in this short letter. Um, but it's been really good. I, I've enjoyed going through it and, and just learning more about uh, Peter and the culture at the time and, and what it really means to suffer uh, because of my faith. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that's what we're going to be. So this week, the, the wrap-up message is going to be, I have the wrong passage on there. It's actually verses 10 through uh, 14, uh, but it's, Behold, I am making everything New. And this is that's a quote from the book of Revelation, Revelation 21, where he just Jesus is seated, seated on his throne. He says, "I'm going to make everything new." But in this passage, we're going to see this culmination of of Jesus receiving this power and authority, um, which is really really important. Um, so the the first point is just context, and this really, if if you don't remember anything else from tonight, I'm I'm really I mean this. Remember this: context is king. I mean, context is so important when it comes to studying your Bible or reading your Bible. It's so easy and cliche to be able to just pull a, a random Bible verse uh, out, of the, out of the scriptures and put on a coffee mug. And that kind of, we've talk, talked about that before. It's easy to do that. Um, one of the most popular, I think, is Matthew uh, 18. Yeah, Matthew 18, where uh, it says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them, all right? Um, and it's kind of this thing that, is, and, it's, and it's a good thing. It's a great, a great verse, but it's actually talking about where there are two or three witnesses in my name because of, of something really bad that's happened to the church and someone needs to be like excommunicated. Jesus is with them, right? But we use this verse as like this fluffy thing. But the context of what the Bible teaches is that if I'm by myself, God is with me, right? I don't need a verse that says where two or three are gathered in my name. Uh, he's just always there. Uh, so... Context is so vitally important um, because the Bible uh, interprets itself very well. And so if we just look at a verse, right, judge not lest ye be judged. That's, a, that's another one that's used a lot um, from Luke or from Matthew, both, time, both of them, I think. 
Um, and that's the one verse that everybody knows, and, it's the, and they all have it memorized in the King James language too, right? Just not, judge not lest ye be judged, right? Um, it's context. It's so important. So I just want to go back and read a little bit of where, where we've been. Peter would have been, this book would have been just read out loud in, in a meeting, right? That people would have assembled together. They simply would have stood up there. They would have read the entirety of the letter and, and comment on it uh, as they're going, but it just would have been a one letter that they would have read. And so when we, when we break it up the way that we do, um, it's hard to remember the flow of the argument and the thoughts that are going on. So let me go back, not all the way, just a couple verses up to verse five in chapter five. It says, young men, in the same way, be submissive to those who are older. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. And then he's going to give us three imperatives, three commands. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be self-controlled and alert. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to devour. Resist him. Standing firm in the faith because you know that your brothers throughout the world are undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And then we get to tonight's passage. And the God of all grace, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you to make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. That is the end of the book. So let's get into this. First one is doxology. Just means glory. Looking at the, the glory of God, and Peter's going to set this up, right? So I'm just going to read those two verses again. And the, it's, just, it's just this doxology. It's just this, this sending off, right? And the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And it, it, if you've been here since the beginning, this should sound familiar. Peter uses this language a lot. So I want to go back to chapter 1, the very, very beginning. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to, the obedient, to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood, grace and peace be yours in abundance." Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you have had to suffer grief and all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of much greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. He repeats himself. He does it in a much succinct 
more fashion uh, in chapter 5, but he, he's saying the exact same thing, the same, same arguments, and, and there's a reason for that in rhetoric, right? To help you re- remember points and, and to be reminded of, this is, the, this is what I'm trying to get at. But there is a great God who loves you and chose you before the foundation of the earth through Jesus Christ, sprinkled with his blood. And there's, there's this, this beautiful thing that's going to happen. And he's going to restore all things, that our, our reward is in him, that is in heaven waiting for us. And that is exactly what he says again at the end of the chapter. Um, this was something that when I was in, uh, I don't know, preacher school or whatever you want to call it, um, they would, they kind of, they would, they give you like devices, right? I mean, I, I don't, I try not to manipulate people, right? With, with rhetoric. I think that's wrong. Um, I'm, I'm okay with emotions and playing on that word. That's fine. Right. But, but I don't like, you know, manipulation. That's not okay. But one thing that they would teach you though, is that when you have a point to make, uh, mainly because it's not written down, is to repeat it, right? And it was always the most formal, maybe you've seen, and again, I'm not dogging people if they do this. It just, it just I, it's, a, it's a pet peeve of mine. Um, and, uh, but they'll do this, they'll say something like, uh, you, you've been set free to be free, uh, so prove it. Now, in case you didn't catch that, let, let me say that, let me say that again. You've been set free to be free, so pro-, right? It was the kind of this like really formal thing, and Peter's doing that here. Right? He's saying, hey, listen, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to repeat this so you don't forget this. Because they wouldn't have had a, like, everyone didn't have a copy of the scriptures, the Bible, in their home. Right? They would have heard it, and he wants this to stick. And so that's what he's doing here. And I love just this idea of, of glory and doxology. Um, if you grew up in the church, you may have ended a lot of your sermons like this. Actually, the, the Corinth church uh, before us, they uh, end with a doxology, um, very similar to this one uh, in a different language, but I can tell it's a doxology because they, they sing it every week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise him, all creatures here below. Praise him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. And then there's like five or six amens that they sing very slowly, um, which would always annoy me when I was a child. I love it now, I guess. I don't know. It's been a while since I've sung it. All right, moving on here. God of grace. We're going to see this God of grace. But he's not just a God of grace. He's a, he's a God of grace even while you're suffering or after you have suffered. We're going to talk about that a little bit later. But in the midst of our suffering, he's a God of all grace. Not just some, like all, all the grace is at your disposal, even in the midst of suffering. And I cannot talk about the suffering and grace without talking about uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Where the apostle Paul is now writing and, and he has this, this statement and I didn't, I didn't got to quote the whole thing, but he says uh, he, he, he went to heaven, but he doesn't know if he physically went to heaven or, or if it was a dream. He says, right, only God knows. Uh, maybe it was in the body, maybe it was in a dream, only God knows, right? He's kind of like, I don't, I don't know what he, what he, he's like, repeats himself again there too, because he's, I think he's, he doesn't know, right? So he's, he's confused. And then he says, he says this, he says, I, he, he heard, he saw some amazing things that, that could never be repeated. And he says, therefore, in order to keep me from being conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Three times I pleaded, pleaded. This isn't just three times I prayed, pleaded. This is seasons of prayer. I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. Some of you have been there. Some of you are in the midst of that. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul then says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly 
about my weaknesses, about my sufferings, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That when I look at this amazing, all-sufficient grace that is at my disposable, that we can boldly go before the throne of grace in our time of need because he cares, he hears, he sees, he knows. He knows, our God knows what it means and what it's like to suffer. So he says, I will glory in that. Matter of fact, I will delight in my weaknesses, in my insults and hardships and persecutions and difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. A lot of you are probably familiar with John Newton. Uh, he wrote the words uh, to Amazing Grace, which we're actually going to sing later uh, this evening. Amazing Grace, it's a song that I think everybody knows. It's an incredibly, incredibly popular song, but John Newton was an incredibly vile, wicked man. He was highly involved in the slave trade, highly, he owned a, or at least was the captain of a slave ship, uh, was just a, a drunkard, uh, murderous in the sense of being a slave trader on those boats and the, and the atrocities that, would have, that did happen under his watch and under his care. And to think that he would pen those words years later after he sees that all-sufficient grace in his own life and says, oh, I, re I remember the things that happened and you protect me, you saved me and the grace that was shown him because of the mercy of Jesus Christ to say, no sin that you ever committed, John, is too atrocious for me to be able to forgive. And so he pens those words, amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Once was lost, but now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. I love the, the second verse where he says, "'Twas grace that brought me safe this far, and grace will lead me home." There was one, uh, one night where John Newton, I may have shared this story before, but he was uh, very intoxicated, and he fell over uh, his ship out of the boat into the water. And his crew didn't like him. His crew didn't like him at all because he was a jerk and a drunk. And uh, they decided they didn't want to stop or turn the boat around or even lower a life raft to try to go get him. Um, so they literally took a whaling harpoon and threw it at him and it hits him in the hip and they just drag him aboard, right? That's his story. And he limped for the rest of his life. But this radical transformation happens with John Newton where he says by the end of his life, he says, every step I take because of my limp is a constant reminder of God's grace in my life. That's radical. Um, he, he also said this right before he died. But though my disease is grievous, it is not desperate. I have a gracious and infallible physician. I shall not die, but live and declare the works of the Lord. But he knew he was going to die. He knew he was going to physically die, but he's saying, no, no, he's, he's gracious, infallible physician. This is not a mistake of my, my dying. And then he also said uh, his very last words before he died uh, were, I am uh, still in the land of the dead, and soon I will be in the land of the living. <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. And one side thing when it comes to God's amazing grace, his all-sufficient grace, is right here. No one anywhere at any point is beyond the reach of the gospel. Nobody is. 
And you, ha- you have to believe that, right? Because for me, when I think about John Newton or Saul of Tarsus, who would become the Apostle Paul, who was murdering Christians, that if the gospel can transform those lives, he can still reach your dad, he can still reach your mom, he can still reach your siblings, he can reach your best friends, because no one anywhere at any point is beyond that reach of God's grace and his gospel. He died for them. He loves them. So we have to be reminded of that truth of God's grace. Because he is the God of all grace. Moving on, I want to talk about this suffering for a little while. Initially, when you, when you read this, right, the God of all grace who, who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while. I think when, we, when you first read that little while, you, you'd think it means like brevity, right? Just for a, a, a little while, right? So like if I enter into some kind of suffering, what Peter's saying is that well, it will be over soon. But I know there are people, uh, at least at this church, that that's not the case. That it's been a lifelong and it will be there for the rest of their earthly lives. I love what, love here what uh, Karen Job says. At first glance, this phrase may seem to say that at times when a believer is aware of suffering for Christ will be uh, sporadic and brief. But the statement is probably to be read from an eschatological, not an existential perspective. Okay? It's not, it should be read from an end times perspective, not an actual here and now in time and space perspective. If the cause of Christian suffering cannot be avoided without renouncing Christ, listen to what she says here, then the threat of suffering is always present throughout the entirety of a Christian's life. And the threat of potential suffering that can at any time erupt into overt suffering is in itself a burden that Christians must carry. Therefore, Peter is more likely saying here than the light of the eternal glory which believers have in Christ, a lifetime in this body is but a little while but it can be a lifetime. A lifetime here that's gonna be a little while. Because as Paul Peter quotes earlier in the book in chapter two, we're like grass and we wither and we fade away, but it's only the word of God that is gonna stand firm and stand strong. But there's going to be a day, those of you who would maybe be in that boat, this, this is a lifetime. I'm in suffering, it's hell for me. I'm suffering, that there's a day coming where faith will be made sight. Um, when I teach through systematic theology, we always talk about uh, the spiritual gifts and what, what, what are still around and what's not and, and healing and prophecy and all those kinds of things. And one of my favorite things is to be able to look at the passage in Corinthians that says that there, the greatest of these are, there's faith, there's hope, and there's love, but the greatest of these is love. And I love that because there's going to be a day I don't need faith anymore. I don't need it. There's, there's going to be a day where I'm going to physically see Jesus Christ standing in front of me. I don't have to have faith that I hope he's real anymore. I can see him. I don't have to have hope. He's right there. But love, love will endure forever. The greatest of these is love. And so even in a lifetime of suffering, There is hope in Christ because he says all things will be new. 
And God called, and the God of all grace, who called you in his eternal glory, in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. Another way that this could be translated simply is God will himself put things right. He will strengthen you, he will empower you, and he will secure you. These are actually four synonyms. Synonym, synonyms, that's right, right? When they're, they're connected, right? Okay, they're, they're, building, they're building up on top of each other until this, this final consummation where we see Jesus. He will put things right. And then he's gonna strengthen you. That's what I, I, I love. Last, last week was stand firm, stand firm, stand firm, resist the devil. And then here it says, no, God himself is going to put things right. God himself is going to strengthen you. God himself is going to empower you. And God himself is going to secure you. When faith is made sight, when Jesus returns and all becomes new. And then he goes into doxology again. Doxology part two, if you will. In verse 11, he says, to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. That, that phrase, as simple as it is, but that, those two words, to him be the power. To him be the glory. Don't touch the glory. Right? Don't, don't take God's glory. Don't even try to do that. There were people who did that in the Bible, and they all were struck down dead. Don't do it. Don't try to claim something that, that God did that maybe you want credit for. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. Don't touch the glory. This was true of Moses. Look over, I always look over here now every time I'm in this building because of the cleft of the rock, right? That he, he has to literally hide in this rock and God covers him with his hand and then God passes by his glory. Moses says, I want to see the glory. And God's like, no, 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 you can't see my glory, but I'll show you where my glory once was. <laughs> and then it made his face shine for weeks. Like, what? Don't touch it. You give him the glory. To him be the power forever and ever. Again, one more quote here from Karen Jobes. And then we're all done, Karen Jobes. Sorry, Karen. She only wrote one commentary on First Peter. So, so long. She's been very helpful for me. She's been a really, really good read if you're into commentaries. Um, she says this. Roman rule had brought the Pax Romana, Roman peace, that ended regional wars and unified the emperor generally improving life around the Mediterranean. But the price of that peace was the iron-fisted power of Roman might that tolerated not even the suspicion of a threat to its glory. The supernatural nature of the Christian church is perhaps best revealed by the historical fact that until the conversion of Constantine, the emperor uh, Constantine, I think he was late 300s, maybe early 400s, all of the might of Rome stood against the infant church. Think about this. Rome was doing everything they, the Roman Empire was doing everything they could to wipe out a bunch of peasants and farmers and fishers because they believed in this. Annihilating power stood ready to come against any whose allegiance to the kingdom of God and to his Christ took priority over the kingdom of Caesar. Just the threat of Roman power would have been sufficient to annihilate Christianity had it been based on anything other than or less than 
the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the face of Roman might, Peter ends his epistle by confessing that to God alone belongs eternal might. Roman glory look like withered flowers. God's eternal might constitutes his eternal dominion, for no other power can conquer or thwart his sovereign purposes. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. And then he gives these closing remarks, and I was just, I was thinking of like the Golden Globes or something, you know, and someone gets their award, and, and they always have to do the obligatory, you know, thank you for my director, and thank you, do they even have a list of names, like thank you for this person, thank you for that person, thank you for this, and so it's like, man, we, man, we just end it there, no, no, we got to talk about these people here real quick, right? It says, with the help of Silas, with whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God. And again, he sends it. Are you nailing this home? Stand fast in it. Stand fast in the true grace of God. Then he says that she who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, send, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. A lot of, lot of ink has been spilled trying to figure out who is this woman of Babylon. Um, it seemed to be pretty much a consensus just to simply say that Babylon was kind of code word for Rome. Um, and that was true of, especially in John's letter in the book of Revelation, uh, Babylon is Rome when this is a threat against them that they could be killed for what they're writing. Um, it seems that could be the case. There was clearly a woman in the church um, who, who uh, Peter uh, loved. Some people speculated it was his wife. Uh, there, not too many people said that, um, but it could have been. Um, and that she is elect, she's chosen as well together with you, and she sends you her greetings. Uh, so he, she's there present with Silas and with Peter as they send out this letter. And it says, and so does my son Mark. This isn't his physical son. Uh, this would have been uh, John Mark who would have traveled with him, that would have uh, uh, been along his side, his side until he was an old man. Um, and he says this, greet one another with a kiss of love, or uh, the way I remember this verse growing up is greet one another with a holy kiss, um, the King James, right? And, and you, think, you think like the question in community time is awkward, right? Imagine if this was one that we took literally um, culturally. Other cultures do this, right? I mean, it's like, like the, the French little, you know, on the cheek thing, you know? It's like, you know, people do it. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's uncomfortable for most Americans, right? Um, just not a thing. But he says this, right? Like the, but this is, there's, there's, show love toward one another, right? Greet each other. This is, this is something that we, we should be doing. And then he sends and he says there, peace to all of you who are in Christ. That's it. That's the book. He ends it with this beautiful doxology. The God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while with uh, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. May that be true. May that be true of us. May that be our prayer. And to him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So I just, I want to end it with just looking at the gospel application of let's, let's praise the God of all grace who will make all things right. Let, let's doxology, right? Let's give him the glory that's due his name that he deserves because of all the good that he's done. And when you're in the midst of suffering and trials, 
to be able to look at a God of grace and just say, man, I don't get it. I don't understand why I'm suffering. All we have to do is look at the cross and be reminded of the grace of God. All we have to do is say, but Jesus, that he died for my sins when I was a wretch. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. Because I once was lost. I once tried to work my fingers down to the bone, trying to get myself into heaven, to try to get myself into a right standing with God. And nothing I could do could get me there. It was only the grace of God that will lead us home. So let's praise the God of all grace who will make all things right. And we're going to do that by singing uh, uh, three different songs tonight, uh, by taking communion like we do uh, every week here at Lower Town. And I hope that this meal, this sacrificial meal, doesn't get old. I really hope it does. It's been two years. It's been two years that we've been doing this together. As a family, as, as taking these elements of the bread and the, and the juice that represents the blood of Christ and the body of Christ that was broken and the blood that was shed for our sins. When we see these tables, we should think that should be us, <laughs> honestly. That should be our blood. It should be our body that's beaten and destroyed, but it wasn't because of the all-sufficient grace of God. And looking forward to that day when he will make all things right. That we will spend all of eternity learning more about our infinite God and we will never be able to figure him out. (laughs) Or else he's not God. So let's sing, let's pray, let's take this meal together. Will you bow your head with me as we partake of these elements and as we sing together? Heavenly Father, again, I thank you for the opportunity that we've had to be here on this day, on Father's Day. That Father's Day is fun for those of us who are, who are fathers and at the same time can be really difficult for people who don't have dads or didn't have loving dads or have absent-minded dads or have Homer Simpson dads or anything like that that would say, he's not a good man or he's gone, he's, he's passed away, he's, he's died, he's rejected my Savior, whatever it may be, this can be a hard day. And even because of our faith in Christ, that simple fact of just our fathers might cause us to suffer at least for a little while here on this earth. But God, would we look to you, a God of all sufficient grace, who we can cry out, Daddy, Father, you are so good. Even when we don't see it, God, would we believe your promises that this is only gonna be a little while and someday, You're going to make all things new because you promised you would and you have always done what you said you're going to do. So God, now would you receive our praise, receive this, the voices and the the joy and the doxology that it's yours, not ours to take from you. And God, would you be praised and honored and glorified And because of even what Peter has said and what we read multiple times, that it is God the Father, we've been chosen before the foundation of the world, that we've been empowered through the Holy Spirit, and we've been grabbed, we've been grasped in your hand because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And God, it is in his name that we pray. Amen.